0: Well, good morning everybody and welcome to week number four of our series Creed where we are exploring what we believe uh, by following the path of the Apostles' Creed. We're gonna be celebrating the Lord's Supper together at the end of our time today and so we just wanna encourage you if you haven't received uh, one of the Lord's Supper packets that you can uh, kinda reach out to one of our ushers in the back and we'll make sure we get that uh, to you. So each week, of course, if you've been here, you know this, we have been digging deeper into the the core of our faith. We've been learning and confessing what we believe as as Christ followers, and we're studying the Bible, uh, using the Apostles' Creed to push us back to God's Word, to get a firmer and deeper and richer grasp on what it is we actually believe. I've been giving you this brief definition that I wanna keep putting before you. Uh, The Apostles' Creed is a short, memorable summary of the historic Christian faith. And I want to also keep reminding you that whenever we read the Creed, it is simultaneously rebellion and allegiance. Every time, really, we confess any of our beliefs, those two things should be happening. It's always gonna be rebellion against the world, against the unbiblical ideologies of our day, and it's also a pledge of allegiance to God and to God's kingdom. So, uh, as we've been doing each week, if you would just join me, let's stand together. We're gonna read the Apostles' Creed together, remembering that as we do that, we are joining in with all of God's global kingdom uh, confessing our faith. So, let's say it together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen, amen. You may be seated. Well today is the second week that we have been exploring the second article of the Creed which is about Jesus Christ. Uh, We started last week looking at his deity. This week we're gonna continue on and the Creed covers his conception, his birth, life, suffering, crucifixion, death, resurrection and ascension. And Last week if you were here you'll remember we studied his deity. Well today the focus is going to be on uh, his humanity. We're gonna look at his earthly life from conception to death. Next week, we're we're gonna be covering his descent, his resurrection, and then his ascension. And so, this is the part of the creed today that we're gonna be zooming in on. I believe in Jesus Christ, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Now, If you think about it, you know right away that there is so very much in that, Uh, but there are just two main ideas that I want us to explore together today, and they are enormous, of course. The first is this, Jesus Christ, we believe, he was conceived and born, and what that means is that God became one of us. God became one of us. So the Apostles' Creed tells us that not only was Jesus God's son, the Christ, our Lord, fully God, but he's also fully human. And that is what conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, is telling us. You can check this out in more detail later, but in Luke 1, verses 30 to 35, uh, which you can go over in your life groups if you'd like, the angel Gabriel visits Mary, tells Mary she has found favor with God, uh, tells her that she's going to conceive and she's gonna give birth to a son and she's gonna call him Jesus. And this baby, the angel says, will be God's son. And he's gonna have an everlasting kingdom. And in verse 35, Mary asks a really good question, how can this happen because I'm a virgin? Verse 35, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Now this morning we're gonna be uh, kind of brief on this one because we're gonna focus the majority of our attention on uh, Jesus' suffering and death. But I wanna just set before you something that I, I think you understand, I hope you understand and believe. We believe that God supernaturally enabled a virgin girl to conceive and to give birth to Jesus. And the Bible tells us that God did this in order that Jesus would not only be his son, the second member of the Trinity, but he would also be a truly and really full human being. He would be a man. We call this doctrine the incarnation of Christ. And this means, that word incarnation means in flesh, And we're gonna be celebrating it in a few weeks at Christmas as we do every year. It's this mind-blowing reality that the creator of the universe becomes a human. He left heaven, he came to earth, he joined us fully in our humanity, he lived life among us. Jesus Christ, the son of God, our Lord, put on human flesh, he set aside all his rights and all his privileges so he could become one of us. Philippians 2, six and seven says about Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. I mean, just try to process that. The, The incarnation means the creator of everything that ever existed entered his own creation that the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God limit himself to a specific time and a specific place in his own world. The infinite became finite. This means the supernatural became natural. And again, if you really stop to think about it, if you're going, okay, yeah, I got it, that means you're not thinking about it. You know, If you really stop to think about it, our minds are, are, are just kind of blown. Our, our finite minds cannot ever fully comprehend how, how Jesus could be both fully God and fully human. But at the same time, we don't get it and we're, we're mind blown by it. We should also be recognizing that shouldn't surprise us at all because we're just trying to understand with our finite minds the infinite God. Now, Theologians call this truth that Jesus was fully God and fully human, the, the hypostatic union, you know, in case it wasn't complicated enough for you right now. And there are entire books, I mean, written on this. And it's it's very complex in a lot of ways, but let me just sum it up for us today, and you can dig into it on your own. It would be a very interesting study. This tells us this is not like 50% God. human, now that's 100% Jesus. No, Jesus has eternally been God's son, but at his birth, he became a human being. And he now has and forever will have these two natures, divine and human, in one person. And they are distinct natures, but they're not mixed, they're not diluted in any way. He is fully God, he is fully human. You know, when we get to Christmas, which we will very soon, we often think of the incarnation in a, in a sentimental way, right? You know, we have all these warm feelings. God became this little tiny baby, good tidings, great joy, peace on earth, goodwill to men. But have you ever stopped to think about how ultimately and radically offensive the incarnation is? How the incarnation makes this, this radical indictment about the human condition and the world we live in. It really does. Theologian N.T. Wright poses this question. How can you live with a terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that the fire has become flesh, that life itself Came to life and walked in our midst. Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It is either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality in the world or it's a sham, a nonsense, a bit of deceitful play acting. Now, maybe you hear that and you're going, What's he talking about here? What, what's, this, what's this disclosure that the incarnation is bringing about and what is devastating about it? Well, I want to show you by by doing a kind of a comparative religion thing for a moment. When you, when you look at how other religions think of salvation, you will notice that they have a lot of similarities with each other, but they always have very, very stark contrasts with Christianity. A Couple examples, Buddha says that you get salvation through enlightenment. Muhammad says you get salvation through submission and obedience. Now think about this. Uh, Buddhism and Islam, they don't agree on how you find salvation, but they do agree on this. They agree that you can find and you can achieve salvation. And if you know, if you thought, this is exactly the opposite of Christianity. Christianity says the darkness in your heart is so dark, you cannot do anything about it. Your sin is is so deep, so devastating, you will never be able to fix it. You're actually spiritually dead. You cannot save yourself. Christianity says you are utterly helpless and hopeless. See, Christianity says the only way to find salvation is for someone to bring it to you. And that's why God, in his infinite mercy, broke in, came down, Emptied himself, setting aside all of his rights and privileges, and he did it to save you. The incarnation is devastating because it reveals to us the darkness, the depth of our sin. And it matters. I mean, it really does make all the difference in the world. So, so how? As we've been doing each week, we've been asking how this impacts our lives. We, we, we've been putting out four categories to, to look at this. Uh, clarity, balance, counsel, reorientation. Let's apply those. How does Jesus' conception and birth change our lives? First, clarity. Well, this doctrine of the incarnation brings clarity to who Jesus of Nazareth truly is. It, it tells us who he is. He is the God-man, both fully divine, uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit, and fully human, born of the Virgin Mary, Now, here's what I want you to understand, and again, this is something you can explore more deeply in your life groups. If Jesus was not conceived by the Holy Spirit, if he was not born of the Virgin Mary, then the entire Christian faith falls apart. Jesus has to be God to be able to reveal God to us and to pay for our sin. Jesus has to be human to take the punishment for sin in our place, And so if Jesus isn't both fully God and fully human, then it means that God has not come to save us. It means that atonement has not been made for our sin. It means that we are still guilty before God and we should be terrified of God. It would mean that God has not defeated death forever through a bodily resurrection. And it means we must still fear the grave. It would mean in the final analysis that we do not actually know if God loves us. See, if this line in the creed goes away, we we lose everything, clarity. Next, balance. These two aspects of Jesus uh, need to be held in balance for us, the human and the divine. And again, we could look at it this way. If Jesus was just a good human teacher, then that means he's not powerful enough to save us. He, could, he couldn't actually have paid for our sin because he would have to be God as well. And because he is God and he is a good teacher, that means we have a Jesus who can both teach us with authority who God is and how we can live. And then he can die on the cross as a man for our sins. So we need to continually remind ourselves to focus on both his, his divinity and his humanity. Then third, counsel. And this truth of the incarnation really does change the way we live. One of the primary ways um, that we could highlight, and there are so many more, one of the primary ways is it should create for us this very deep sense of confidence. See, here's the thing. If God did all this, becoming fully human, coming to earth to live with us, then he must really be for me. He must really be for you. He must really love us, he, he must really care. He, he must really be for our good. This means that I can trust God's intentions for my life. Do you trust God's intentions for your life? Do you live each day, you just wake up in the morning, kinda have this settled confidence, whatever happens, God's in control, God is good, and God loves me. Do you wanna know where that confidence comes from? It comes from this, that God, God sent his son, nothing more, nothing less. God sent his son. It should change your heart. And that leads to reorientation. And again, I'm just so conscious of so many things we could say here. I wanna say it again. If God would give up eternity for you, how can you not give him everything? Some of you are so stingy with your time for God, so ungenerous with the resources that God has given you. You will not give. You will not serve. You're busy. This doctrine, if you fully understand it, it just reorients everything. It should turn your entire world upside down, amen? You're gonna, again, I just wanna encourage you, you got a lot to talk about in your life groups this week. I hope you're getting ready for that, taking some notes and taking those with you to the group. So that's the first thing, the first part of the creed that we're looking at uh, this morning. Here's the second one, Jesus suffered and died. This means that Jesus experienced death for us. So the creed says he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. So what are are we confessing when we say those words? And I wanna get at it by just kinda, again, asking two big questions about Jesus suffering and death. The first is the why question. Why did he suffer? Why was he crucified? Why did he die? Why was he buried? Why did this have to happen? And then, of course, the second question is the what question. This is what does it matter for my life? Why does this matter? 2,000-year-old historical event, like you know the death of a 30-something Jewish man in first century Palatine. What in the world does this have to do with me in 2021? Now, if you've grown up in church, and many of us, of course, have, you think, of course, this all matters. I've heard this my whole life. I know this had to happen. But I want you to kinda try to pull out for a while from your experience. If we distance ourselves from what we have learned If we kind of go outside the church and look at it, it's kind of a strange phenomenon. I mean, just think about it. We live in an increasingly secular moment, this Western culture of ours. So, you know, people who don't know the story, who haven't really encountered it and and processed it, you know, they they ask, how can the death of a Middle Eastern man like 2,000 years ago really matter to us today? And in fact, when they look at it, they think, you know, it's kind of strange if you're outside the church. Like, like you guys are, you're so obsessed with this man, Jesus. I mean, just again, try to get outside of it for a moment and look at it. We're, we're not only obsessed with him, we're obsessed with his death. Think about it. I mean, where else in the world are are people so obsessed with one person's death. And to make it even worse, it's not even a normal death, it's this horrible death, it's this gory death, it's this gruesome death. And then, like, we sing about it all the time, right? We're always singing about his death. You know, I mean, and we're, we're singing about his blood, and, like, you people think you're gonna drink his blood in a little while before you leave this place. That's weird. Right? Right? I mean, we, think about it, we do all these things and we call his death wonderful and good and amazing. A lot of us, a lot of us take it even further. We have cross tattoos, right? Who here has a cross tattoo? Come on, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna. Did it? I wanna raise those hands high and proud. I want you to just show everybody. See, a lot of people all across, a lot of different ages have, have a cross tattoo. I mean, think about that. You have tattooed on your body a Roman torture device. <laughs> Weirdos. <laughs> right? I mean, again, we're so used to it and it's so far removed. When nobody does crucifixion, like in our experience, but just bring it up to date. I mean, what would you think if one of your friends showed up and said, hey, let me show you my electric chair tattoo? <laughs> right? I mean, again, you have to step outside, you know, right, right outside where everybody can see the reality. We're so accustomed to we've forgotten. And yet, and yet, people all around the world For 2,000 years, they confess that they have encountered this man, Jesus, and they say that his suffering and his death has changed everything for them. Well over two billion people in our world today say that. So let's dive in. And let's keep in mind what it is we're talking about. We'll start with those words suffered under Pontius Pilate. And I don't know if it's occurred to you each week as we've read. um, That's kind of odd to have Pontius Pilate's name. I mean, of all the people named, I mean, nobody else gets named, humanly speaking, right, in this creed. Pontius Pilate, he shows up on a couple of pages of the scripture, then he's gone. And like, he's not even a good guy, Why Pontius Pilate? Well, I think the answer, in short, is this: His his name grounds the events of Jesus' suffering and death in history. This tells us, whenever we read it and confess it, this is not a legend. This is not a myth. Jesus was a real person who really died. And in fact, I'll just tell you, there are no serious scholars who question that today. Jesus lived and Jesus died. He was crucified on a Roman cross. It is history. It really happened. But the question is still out there, why? I wanna take you to a passage in Romans chapter five. We're gonna look at verses six through 11 because this is one of the most clear and concise places in the New Testament where we see the why behind this line in the creed. Here's what Paul writes beginning in verse six. He says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, notice what Paul is saying about us in these verses. He calls us powerless and ungodly. Say, I'm powerless. I'm I'm ungodly. ungodly. I was waiting to see if you'd do that one. But that's who we were apart from Christ. We were powerless and ungodly. Why why did he do it or what did he do? Well, the last four verses of verse eight tell us Christ died for us. Now again, some of you may be here and maybe you're not sure you believe this. Maybe you kinda think you don't really believe it. Maybe you're wondering, you're checking things out. But you might be hearing this and thinking, well, it says Christ died for us, but I didn't ask for that. I didn't even know it happened like until right now. But the Bible, the Bible tells us that the reason this God-man Jesus wrapped himself in human flesh was to die for you. Why? Let's keep going, look at verses nine through 11. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. There's so much, uh, so many reasons that is in are uh, in these verses. I'm gonna just start with this, um, just for your consideration. We have no other hope. We have no other hope. That's a big part of what Romans five is making clear. Jesus died when humanity was at its worst. Let's just make it real personal, right? Jesus died for us while I was at my worst, while I was at my worst. Um, The worst version of myself. Paul says powerless. Paul says ungodly. Paul says sinful. Paul says God's enemy. Have you ever realized that apart from Jesus Christ, you were the enemy of God? You were his enemy. That's what the Bible says. I was deserving of his wrath. You put all that together. In that moment, Jesus, at my worst, he died for me. Maybe again, you you hear that and you're kind of thinking, well, you know that, I don't know. You say you're a pastor, but. That powerless, ungodly stuff, maybe that may be true for you, but that's not me. I mean, I think I'm a lot better than that. I think I'm a pretty good person. In fact, I, I have that be a good person T-shirt. <laughs> you seen those? Um, uh, those shirts are for those of you who have it all together and you're graciously trying to help the rest of us who don't have it all together or get it all together. <laughs> Thanks. You're reminding them, be a good person, like, like, like me. And again, I, I think, and, and you know, we're, we're laughing, we're smiling, we're joking about it, but a lot of people think exactly that, they really do. And, and I, think, I think some of us, maybe here today, I know there are people out in the world who would say, you know, really, when you stop to think about it, when you kind of get past some of the service, I think humanity is pretty good. I think the world is mostly a good place which perfectly explains the world wars and the genocides and the ever-present reality of racism in our world, the greed, the rising murder rates, the sex trafficking, the Taliban, those hackers in Russia that keep stealing our data, and that guy in Nigeria who keeps sending us emails. It just explains it all. (laughs) Now can we talk? To keep saying the world is a generally good place requires massive amounts of denial. And I think maybe, maybe one of the few good things about the last couple years is that some of us have come to realize in a fresh way that the world is not that good a place. Let's just make this more personal. We're not pointing fingers out there. Let's just be honest with ourselves because the Bible is the Bible tells us we aren't as good as we think. Nobody said amen to that. You want to give it a shot now? We aren't as good as we think. We really aren't. Um, If you read the Bible, I mean, you know that the Bible has a very high standard of what's good and what's not. And Like most of us, we kind of know we fall short there, but let's not even use the Bible standard, okay? Let's just use the standard we hold ourselves to because if we're honest, don't we know that we can't even live up to our own standards? I mean, we just disappoint ourselves all the time, right? We tell ourselves we're good people, but we kind of know, yeah, we're good people who kind of lie a little bit we're good people who kind of, you know, say bad things sometimes about other people. We're, we're good people who get really angry at our families here and there. We're good people who steal stuff that isn't ours, just a little. We're good people who look at things we'd be humiliated about if anyone here knew, but we're still good, right? Yeah, we're, we're good people who lie, gossip, rage, steal, and watch porn, just a little bit. And most of us can't even keep our New Year's resolutions past like the middle of January. That's how good we are. See, here's what we do, and I think we've gotten even deeper and deeper into this thing. We, we, we just curate this version of ourselves with all of our highlights. We take our highlights and we put them on Instagram, and, and then we compare our highlights to everyone else's lowlights, and we think, yeah, I'm pretty good. We, we, never, we never gonna show our lowlights, lights. Because if people saw what was really going on in our lives, then they would see that we're not good and then we'd have to return our Be a Good Person t-shirt. We never let people see the bitterness eating away their souls or the envy that dominates our thoughts over someone's house or car or job. Some of you have looked at someone else's spouse since you've been here this morning and you are so envious, you are so resentful that you're not married to them instead of that loser you're sitting next to. Some of you, you are so angry right now, so angry at something you couldn't sing and you can hardly listen to the message but you can't let anyone see that. See, we just never we never let people in. We never let them see our shame. We we never let them let them be aware of the patterns of self loathing that just cycle through our days, in and out, over and over and over again. And so, if we are not good enough for our own standards, we're definitely not good enough for God's standards, right? And, and listen, that's the point. That's the point. That's why we need a savior. That's why Christ died for us. That's what Romans 5, 6 through 11 That's what these lines in the Apostles' Creed are all about. It's not just that we're not good. We're powerless. We're ungodly. We're enemies of God. We're sinners. We deserve God's wrath. But friends, hear me. Do not miss this. This is the good news. Listen to the good news. Though though we are more sinful than we've ever admitted to ourselves, though it's worse than we think because we're so self-deceived, because Christ died for us, we are more loved than we could ever imagine. See, all that stuff that I've been saying, it's true. And a lot of us really need to let that sink in. The worst news about you, it's all true. But the good news is truer. See, this is why the suffering and the death and the, the blood of Jesus is so beautiful and so good. This is why Christians have been singing about it for 2,000 years. It's why Romans 5, 8 tells us, but God demonstrates, say demonstrates, demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, that. The reality of the suffering and crucifixion and death and burial of Jesus is both an indictment on us. We are guilty and it is the full restitution for the wrong that we have done. It is why this is the crux of the Christian faith, which is a Latin word that comes from cross, which you probably know. This is the reason why we are fixated, we are obsessed with this Jewish man who lived 2,000 years ago who we believe was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He is God in the flesh who came and suffered and died, the only one able to die in our place. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. So this brings us to our second question. What does this have to do with me? Jesus suffered and died for us. What does this say to my life in 2021? Again, those four areas, clarity, balance, counsel, reorientation. First, clarity. This brings the gospel into focus. Jesus, suffering, crucifixion, death, and burial bring clarity to our true spiritual state apart from God. That's what we were talking about. It just shines the light on the depth of our sin. And in doing so, it shows us so much more clearly how much God loves us. I just wanna say it again. There is no greater picture of love. The cross shows you if you struggle with believing it, it shows you how much you're loved, how much you're valued. And so every time we remember, we confess that Jesus is both God and man, that the Son, the second person of the Trinity has wrapped himself in flesh, he has come to earth, he has lived, he has died. Just let this sink in for a second. God died for you, so you don't have to. We are loved, but it brings clarity to more, it, it brings clarity to our justification. Jesus suffered and was crucified and died and buried to, to justify us or to, uh, more clearly put it, to make us right with God. Romans five says we are justified by Jesus' blood. Now, doctrinally, theologians have said this is the great exchange. Martin Luther made that famous. He exchanged his perfect righteousness for our sin. He took our sin, he took our shame, and he covered us in his righteousness. It's kind of a a legal courtroom image, and the imagery is the innocent person in the the courtroom is, is found guilty, and the guilty person gets to go free. Some have said it's as if Jesus takes the cloak of his perfect righteousness, and he places it over us so that when God the Father looks at us, he doesn't see all our sin. He just sees Jesus, and Jesus' righteousness justifies us. It also brings clarity to how we are delivered from the wrath of God There's an actual deliverance from wrath that happens on the cross. Um, And it kind of works like this. We're gonna talk a little bit more about this idea next week. But if God is this perfectly righteous judge, he can't just say, I'll forgive. And there's not gonna be any consequences. He can't. That wouldn't be just. And you know that. You know that. We all have this this innate longing for justice. In fact, I would just say it this way, it's hardwired in us. We want to see wrongdoers brought to justice. We want evil in our world to have consequences. That's because you're made in the image of God. God hardwired that into you in his creation. And so for God to be consistent in his character, to be a perfectly just God, he has to pour out his wrath on evil. And again, the beauty of the cross of Jesus is that God did exactly that. And be really clear about this. He did not just do it for the evil out there. He did it for the evil in here. Because the evil out there doesn't come from nowhere. And this is one of the great mistakes that our culture makes. We wanna just talk about the evil out there as if it just grows up out of the dirt. Where does the evil out there come from? Right, It has to come from somewhere. It comes from people. It comes from the individual hearts of evil that are in all people apart from, from God. And so God on the cross, he, he pours out his wrath, the wrath that we all deserve. he puts it on Jesus. That's what he does. He delivers us from wrath. The death of Jesus reconciles us to God. He forgives our sins. But again, notice, Paul talks about this at the end of our passage. It's not just forgiving you and bringing you back to neutral. There's this full reconciliation that takes place. We are reconciled to God and therefore we draw near to God through Jesus' finished work on the cross and we move from being enemies to being friends. We are the friends of God. Now, there's a lot that I've been saying. The cross of Jesus, his suffering and his death brings clarity to so much Second, balance, and again, there's so many ways we could go with this, but let me point this one out. Most of us wrestle with one of two false views of self, and I'll simply state it this way. Either we tend to think we're far worse than we are, or we tend to think we're far better than we are, and you probably know who you are. We got worse people and better people all across this room. Everybody kinda tilts in certain directions. And if we're like the worst people, we, we, we either wrestle with a lot of shame, or thinking of both things, we wrestle with a lot of shame or we wrestle with pride. This passage brings us back to the center. And again, people from both groups are here right now. Sometimes when I do premarital counseling, it's not uncommon that I, I will experience that one of the people in that uh, relationship struggles with feeling that they're good enough to be married to the other person. They just don't feel worthy. And that's just one example of that. No matter what that other person says, they just worry about that. And, and for you, it may not be that. Maybe it's in another area. And it's kind of an interesting thing. you know. I talk to people who say they've trusted Jesus with their whole lives, and maybe you would confess and say, I believe Jesus has totally dealt with my sin, and yet you keep struggling with these feelings that you're still not good enough for God. We, we, we hold on to shame. And, and this often kind of works itself out in a, one of a couple of ways. Either we subject ourselves to unnecessary suffering. There's a lot of you, when you see your fallenness, you think I gotta inflict some pain on myself. I gotta suffer a little bit more. I gotta be harder on myself. If I do that, then maybe God, my, maybe God will accept me and I'll feel okay. Other people, it's not about suffering, it's about doing. They think, well, I, I gotta deal with this by you know, doing a bunch of, of good stuff. And so we kind of keep this running tally of all the things we're doing right in order to make us feel better uh, because of our shame. And wherever you are in this spectrum, the answer is the same thing. Remember, remember, remember what Jesus said on the cross. He said, it is finished. And he meant it. It's done. Your right standing before God, if you've put your faith in Jesus, will never change. We need to live in this balance. And I wanna say it again, please listen to me right now. God loves you. Some of you in this room, it's been a very long time since you heard someone say that to you. And you feel unlovable. Will you let this truth, this reality Balance you out, change you. God loves you. How do we know Christ died for you? Now, I've been talking about people who harden themselves. Some of you you don't have that problem. Some of you are always excusing yourself, rationalizing the stuff you do, saying it really doesn't matter. You know, we minimize the reality of our sin, we treat it lightly, we act like it's no big deal. And you need to remember what I just said to everybody else, that Jesus, God's son, second person of the Trinity, he died for you. He died for you, for our sin. That means your sin is that bad. Your sin put Jesus to death. And so I just wanna ask you, like, what are you playing around with? Where are you pushing some boundaries? You know, maybe it's like, ah, I drink a little bit too much, but I'm just buzzed. Maybe, maybe it's like we're, I don't know, a little promiscuous sexually. And we don't wanna listen to what the Bible says about those things, we, we just kind of end up saying, Jesus has forgiven me. I can kind of live however I want to. Maybe you are here today and what you need to hear is this. Jesus died for you, so hear and feel the weight of your sin. It's that bad. Let it balance you. Some of us need to meditate on forgiveness. Some of us need to meditate on the weight of our sin. It brings us back to the center. And then third, counsel. This passage counsels us. If, if Jesus' suffering, crucifixion, death, and for us, and burial were for us, it means two things. As I've already mentioned to highlight, again, we are both fully known by God and fully loved by God. Fully known, fully loved. And you, you put those both together and you, you think how unique this is. See, if the good news of Jesus is actually true, then it means we're fully known by God. For the good news of Jesus to be true, it means as I said, that we are way worse than we could ever imagine, that all the worst things about us are true. We're fully known. God knows those. And yet, and yet, Jesus still died for us, right? And we're still fully loved. See, we think those things cannot go together. This is the reason why some of you will never, never tell people in your life the full truth, because you are convinced if I tell, they will not love me. And I can't tell you if they will love you. What I can tell you is that God knows everything about you. And God knows it's way, way worse than you even think. He knows it all and he still loves you. He still sent his son to die for you, die for you. The gospel says we're fully known, we're fully loved. So just counsel your heart with that today. Some of you need to write that down before you leave. I'm fully known, I'm fully loved. And you just, you just need to feed on that this week. Let God nourish you. Let God heal you with that reality. Last thing, reorientation, before we take the Lord's Supper together. If this is all true, and it is, if God knows us and loves us, it changes so much I'll just mention this. The gospel literally levels the playing field for us. Romans 3.23 says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. So we're all sinners. We all deserve death. We all deserve God's judgment. And that means we're all in this together, right? All you sinners, we're all in this together. All of us sinners, we're all in this together, and so this changes the way we love each other. It changes the way we forgive each other. It changes the way we live with each other. In fact, the Bible is so very clear that if we are not forgiving each other, if we are allowing hurts to distance us from each other, even to isolate ourselves from them in a, in a futile attempt, I don't know, like to keep ourselves safe, If we are not forgiving others who have hurt us, it means we haven't truly understood Jesus' death and suffering, and we need his death, we need his suffering to reorient our lives. It means we should get serious about loving each other, about forgiving each other. It means we should get serious about serving each other. Now again, Every time I'm on these, I keep saying, there's so much more, there's so much more. And again, I wanna say, you need to talk about this in your life group. You can have some really good life group discussions this week as we contemplate how this reality that we're all sinners and we all deserve God's judgment changes the way we relate to each other. Well, let me close with this, and then we're gonna sing and we're gonna take the Lord's Supper together. We believe, we believe in Jesus, the God-man, born of a virgin come to suffer and die for our sins. And because of that, we know God loves us. We know he loves us because of Jesus, his birth, his life, and his death. That's why the cross matters. That's why we sing, and that's why we remember.